0: John chapter 7 verses 25 through 52 is our text this morning and what you've seen just right before your eyes. And I think there's great value in watching these uh, scripture videos come to life because especially passages like today, a lot of things going on, a lot of people saying things and I think it, it helps us to put into picture all that's transpiring. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. We're in a series that we had taken a break for, uh, from for a couple of weeks during our season of Christmas called the Gospel of John. Uh, looking at this book that was written by Jesus' closest friend and associate, the Apostle John. Now John writes this kind of in three sections, this gospel. The first section, he wants us to meet Jesus. He wants us to behold Jesus, to become an acquaintance with Jesus, to know a little bit about who Jesus is, where he came from, and what he was all about. Then in these middle chapters where we find ourselves today, we're coming to learn more and more about Jesus. We're learning from his messages. We're learning from his miracles. We're starting to understand what makes Jesus tick. What's his passion? What's his pursuit and goal in life? And, and then later on, really beginning in John chapter 12 and beyond, we are going to learn to trust Jesus. That is to put all of our weight, all of our life into his hands, and we're going to see that through the lens or through the eyes of the apostles. When Jesus spends much time with them in the upper room, when he spends time with them telling them about what's about to transpire, and they have to make a decision. Will we trust the words and the power of Jesus, even if it means we become outcasts as a result? We want to meet Jesus. We want to learn about Jesus so that we can Trust Jesus. John says at the end of his gospel, all the things that have been written have been written so that you and I might believe. And this morning, it's no different. Jesus wants us to believe. Jesus is inviting us to the living water that only He can provide. In John chapter 7, we find Jesus in Jerusalem, He is at a festival one of the obligatory um, uh, festivals of the year. It's called the Festival of Tabernacles or Booths. Uh, This is a commemoration, a celebration uh, of the time of the uh, Egyptian exodus, where the Israelites had left slavery in in, uh, Egypt, and now by God's divine hand had been brought into the wilderness. They would stay in the wilderness for 40 years now, those years would be hard years, they would be years of rebellion and grumbling, but they would also be years of God's gracious and mighty hand serving and, and tending and protecting His people. Jesus talks about one aspect of this in John chapter six, where he says, "He's the bread of life." <clears throat> Excuse me, in comparison, in comparison to the manna that God provided their forefathers in heaven. Now he's going to invite, he's going to invite people to drink from him. That echoes John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, that if you were to drink from Jesus, you would never grow thirsty. But Jesus is going to speak specifically to an issue of drinking from that wilderness experience. In fact, in the wandering of the wilderness of the Israelite people, God would provide his people with water. They found themselves in a parched and, and dry land, millions of people needing water, and God would command Moses to strike a rock, a boulder, and from it water would miraculously flow so that all would be able to get what they need and would be thirsty no more. Jesus is going to say at the end of this celebration that he is the living water, that we shouldn't be going around looking for the world to fill us. We shouldn't look to the law of Moses to fill us. We shouldn't even look at the things of old that our forefathers did to fill us, but that we should now look to him, look to Jesus to fill us. Now, during that day, The Pharisees had told people it was what you were doing. That is what was on the outside of a man. How you adhered to the law of Moses, how you met the laws and regulations of the Mosaic commands. But Jesus comes and he says, listen, it's not what's on you, but it's what's in you. Now, when I was studying this passage, that phrase, it's not what's on you, but what's in you, began to strike a chord. Growing up, I remember Gatorade was getting some competition from Powerade, this upstart uh, energy and sports drink, and they came out, Gatorade did, with an ad campaign, and they went to Michael Jordan, and they went to Michael, and Michael narrated this incredible uh, commercial that said the words, it's not what's on you, but it's what's in you that's important, Now, for many, they kind of took a step back because this was Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan had for forever been parading that it was what was on him that made him better. It was the Nike shoes that did it, the Air Jordans that helped him to transcend his opponents. But now he was saying, it wasn't what was on you, But now, as a spokesperson for Gatorade, it was what was in you. That is, you drink our drink, and it will allow you to rise to new heights and new levels. You see, what Jesus is saying to us and to the audience that was there that day is it's not what's on you. It's not your religiosity. It's not your adherence to do's and don'ts, but it's what's in you that's going to take you to new levels. And Jesus is inviting any and all who are willing to come to drink him in, to take him in, to make him our own. And in doing so, he says, rivers of living water will flow. So that's the thrust of the text. Now, to understand it better and to apply things from it, we need to understand this text. And we need to do so by asking some questions this morning. And the first thing we need to ask is the question, what are you or what are we saying? What are we saying? Now, what I want you to do is I want you to understand if you're as confused with this text Um, You are not alone. I too uh, struggled to understand okay, who's saying what? I had to uh, print out this passage in large uh, print so I could begin to write notes who's saying what and who's saying, you know, this and that. There's a lot of talking going on in our text. In fact, more than a dozen different times, you'll see the derivative of the common word, speak, smoke, speaking, saying, muttering, whispering, all of these saying, if you will, statements. But the problem is, is who's saying them? There are three groups who are saying things this morning, and we have to ask the question, what are we saying? So let's start with, first of all, Uh, The first group of people, and that is the critics. The critics. So we've got this group of people that are saying things. Well, there's the critics. The critics are found, and if you want to write this down, they're found in verse 25, verse 30, verse 32, and verse 44. Now, the critics are the religious leaders of the day and their followers. These critics are anti-Jesus. They're anti his message, they're anti his mannerisms, they're anti his miracles. And we are told early on that they are not simply critics in voice, but in vice. What I mean by that is, is that they want to see Jesus dead. In fact, in verse 25, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? The Pharisees wanted Jesus dead. And they tried, and they tried, and they tried, but Jesus was always one step ahead of them. Now, how do critics work? Now, last week we talked that we live within a culture that has critics abounding, And they're going to abound more and more in the last days, the Bible says. And they're going to critique, first of all, Jesus himself or God. We talked about a quote of an individual who was a a staunch critic of God last week and said heinous things about him. But they're going to criticize Jesus. So notice the criticisms of Jesus have to do with his claims, Jesus says, you know who I am. I am the son of God. I come from our father in heaven. And the critics say, no, no you don't. You're from Galilee. And, and, and the person that is to come from God was to come from Bethlehem. They knew the Bible. And they said, listen, you, you don't meet the requirements. You are not the Messiah. But they also are critical of the followers of Jesus, They say later on in the text, when the officials go to arrest Jesus in verse 46, and when they come back, the chief priests and the Pharisees say, why did you not bring him with you? And the officer said, no one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? So the critics of Jesus in our day will not only criticize Jesus, but they will criticize anyone who believes in the words of Jesus or the claims of Jesus. And so these critics will say, you're deceived. These critics will say, you're duped. And and then let's just face it, in verse 49, the Pharisees say, of anyone who follows Jesus, you're cursed. And so we live in a time that's not very different than this first century audience. We have critics around us. Maybe you work with them. Maybe you watch TV programs that have them on it. Maybe you read of these critics. Maybe you have critics like this in your own family. But before you think that every person who's an unbeliever is a critic, you'd be wrong. Because in this crowd of people who are saying lots of things about Jesus are, yes, a group of critics, but we also have what I want to call the curious but not captivated. The curious but not captivated. And so these people do some talking and they say some things. They talk in verse 26. It says they were whispering or muttering in verse 30. In verse 35, they speak again. And in verse 41, they say that Jesus is the Christ, but he's not from, but he's from Galilee. So they say he could be the Christ, but he's not meeting because they've bought into the, the messaging of the Pharisees and they are being swayed by it. Now, each of these verses show people that are torn. They're vacillating, they're double-minded, they're moving from one argument or one opinion to the other, they're being torn apart, They're, they're divided, they like Jesus. But they also know that their religious leaders, the religious establishment says Jesus is no good and they're not sure what to do about it. Can, can I just tell you, in my world, where I live, where I do work and in my community, I think there's a lot of people who are curious about Jesus. I know this, that when I go out and cater events and tell people I'm a pastor, they don't say, you know what, we're done using your catering business. Uh, in fact, when I tell people I'm a pastor, whether in my community or, or out and about in my business transactions and dealings, most people are very respectful. And they receive me well. And they're encouraged by it. Oh, you must serve and and do a wonderful job. You're doing a good work. You're taking care and ministering to people. And people usually tell me, you know, yeah, my my parents are involved in this church. Or I have a brother or sister they are involved in that church. There's this idea of a curiosity. Many of them will celebrate the traditions and holidays surrounding the Christian uh, faith. And they do so knowing that Jesus is a good man, but... But is he everything that he says he is? I like some of what Jesus says, but I also like kind of the way I live and doing my thing. You know, the critics were unwilling to submit and give themselves up to Christ. They loved their own autonomy and control. And, and for some of our curious neighbors and friends, giving that up to this Jesus is probably a little more than we can give. And so if you're like me, you probably live in a world where there's lots of curious people around you, but there's a handful of critics along the way. So what do we do with them? What do we do with them? I want you to take heart that no matter if you're a critic or you're curious, Jesus invites. In verse 37, he says, I want all to come to me, which we'll address in a moment. Therefore, we should never give up on the curious or the critics around us. Now, the Bible helps us, and it tells us that the critics they've come to know Jesus. James, one of Jesus's half-brothers, was a massive and major critic of his half-brother Jesus. And it wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus that James finally give up his criticism of Jesus and become a committed follower of Jesus. How about Saul of Tarsus? Dedicated his young life to destroying and persecuting the church. And Jesus would meet Saul, the critic of critics, on the road to Damascus, and in a Damascus moment, he would be changed forever. Listen to me, friends. Critics can come to know Jesus. Because Jesus, as we've sung this morning, is mighty to save the greatest critics in our lives. But Jesus also saves the curious The book of Acts is full of curious people coming to Jesus. I think of Lydia. I think of Cornelius. I think of the Ethiopian eunuch. I think of a great many individuals, the Philippian jailer, all curious. What must I do to have eternal life? Curious individuals who saw the work of Jesus and asked follow-up questions. We live in a world full of curious individuals. Well, there's one final group. One final group saying things, and that's the committed. These are the believers. In verse 31, it says, many believed. Many committed themselves to Christ. In verse 40 and 41, this group of individuals say that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one who God said was going to come and save his people from their sins. We might even say that the guards who went to arrest Jesus might have become committed individuals. They were captivated by the thought no one had ever spoken like this man before. So three groups, three groups of people. In verse 43, it says that they were divided about Jesus. So friends, just as in the first century with Jesus, we live in a day where we are divided. We have critics, we have people who are curious, and we have the committed And they're all divided over one thing, Jesus. Jesus says he is God. Jesus in this text says he is from the Father. Jesus says that he is going to go back to the Father in a matter of of, uh, months. And the people are divided. Who is this Jesus? A lot of people saying things. But let me stop and ask you. The very question that Jesus asked of the disciples Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus asked the most profound question in Matthew 16 of his disciples, and I ask this of you, my dear friends Who do you say Jesus is? You have to answer that fundamental question because that is the question that will divide us as human beings. And sadly, those three responses will divide us in two ways. The critical and the curious, if never giving their lives by faith over to Jesus Christ, will end up on the day of judgment being pushed away from God and placed in a place called hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But if you say Jesus, as Peter did, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and you believe it with all your heart, and you make him Lord and Savior of your life, then you will enter on that day of judgment, a place of rest and blessedness. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, let's stop there and say that the vast majority of you, I'm going to imagine, will say, that's my answer. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You are the one who has the words of life, Where else am I going to go? And for that, I'm thankful. But then it begs the question, if that's what I'm saying, then I have to ask, is it in me? Just like Gatorade, isn't that we just wear Jesus on the outside, but it's what's in you that's going to take you to a new level. Jesus says in John 7, 37, on the last day, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So I'm speaking to a group of people. I'm going to imagine 95% of you are are, uh, committed followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe 3 or 4% of you are curious. You're hanging around. You're not sure, but your family's here, or your friend's here, or you're not sure why you're here, but you're here. And you're hearing this big guy talk about Jesus and you're okay with hearing about it. Tell me more. There may be still 1% or 2% of you unknown to us, unknown to anyone else, because you haven't stood up and yelled at me to shut up or do anything. You're a critic. Again, Jesus is inviting all of us. But to the 95% of the people in this room, I receive what you're saying. Let me ask a follow-up question. What are you showing? What are you showing? In the earliest services, I lamented going back and forth on this story, and I have shared it, and I'll share it in this one. And I'll talk about the wrong, and then let's talk about the right. So many of you know, I run a catering business, so that catering business takes me all over the place, and I interact with lots and lots of people, and I was on an event not too long ago, it was about a year or so ago, and I was talking with an individual at the event. We began to talk, and and you know how these conversations go, you start connecting the dots that you have connections with the person, right? Right? You start seeing that your two worlds, though you are strangers, your worlds start c- coming together, and you start finding out, well, yeah, I know so-and-so, and I know so-and-so. Well, that's what happened in this conversation. And the individual said, I said, oh, so you, you work there? He says, yeah. I said, oh, do you know so-and-so? Well, yeah. He goes to my church. I'm his pastor. Yeah, I, yeah I've known him for a while, and... The guy's face was perplexed, and I kept going because I've got a big mouth, and I just kept talking about this guy, and the guy didn't want to say anything, and I could tell there was this angst of, I'm about to burst this bald guy's bubble. And he says, can I just be honest with you, and the whole tone of the conversation changed, and he says, if that guy goes to your church, I'm not sure what kind of church you're pastor in. Oh, what? What? And he began to tell me a litany of things that no pastor wants to hear his congregant doing Monday through Friday. I was heartbroken. And that individual would say and would sit with us and say, what a beautiful name Jesus is. Jesus has no rival. Jesus has no equal. Amen and pray and and do all the things that we are supposed to do. They would say all of those things, but they weren't showing it. This is where Jesus says, listen, you can say a lot of things, but the proof is in the pudding. On that last day, he said, whoever believes in me, The scriptures are right. Out of his heart is going to flow rivers of living water, meaning you're going to see it. It's going to be visible to a watching world. And so what I want to do with the words of verse 37 and 38 is do two things. I want to speak to the subject of evangelism, looking at these verses, and then what I want to (coughs) do is evaluate what people might say because we aren't showing what we are saying. Does that make sense? So let's, let's talk about evangelism. What Jesus is saying is, is you and I, when we come to Jesus, will not be able to keep it to ourselves that as we begin to drink this water this water is going to transform us in such a way that we're going to ha- we're going to be compelled we're going to have no choice but to tell others about it it's just going to we're going to smell like it we're going to sweat it out i mean it's just going to be everywhere so so it's going to be all around people and so what's going to happen is is it's gonna give us opportunities to do something. We're Christ followers, we're taking Christ into our workplaces, our schools, into our neighborhoods, into our families, and Jesus is saying people are gonna see it because you're gonna have puddles of water wherever you go. And as these puddles of water go, people are gonna point and say, what's that puddle of water behind you? What's going on there? What's my river? What do you mean it's your river? It's my river of living water. I've come to know Jesus. So how does that storyline go for our times of evangelism. Write these things down. What am I showing? The first thing I need to tell people is what I was looking for. What I was looking for. And you need to tell people what you were looking for. Notice Jesus says in verse 37, if any of you, if anyone thirsts, stop there. Everyone thirsts. Jesus is giving an invitation to everyone, critic, curious, committed, all of us, every human being, every man, woman, and child, old and young, all of us are thirsting for something. We're looking for something. We're longing for something. We are empty. There's a void in us somewhere. We're hurting. We're searching. We're longing. Every human being is on a search, a pursuit To fill their life with significance and purpose. I love what my friend Ray Pritchard says with regards to this. He says, inside all of us is a thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. We all have a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. Some people thirst for sexual fulfillment, so they hop from one relationship to another. Some people think career advancement is the key to happiness, so they move from job to job. Some of us are adrenaline junkies, always on the move, looking for the next jolt of excitement, the next big adventure, the next battle to fight, trying to fulfill the wild-at-heart impulse we feel on the inside. Some people thirst for significance. Others thirst for power. Others thirst for fame or wealth or close relationships to fill the lonely void inside. There's a thirst of the intellect. We want to know the truth. There's a thirst of the conscience. We're guilty and we want forgiveness. There's thirst of the heart. We desperately search for happiness and don't know where to find it. So we come to Christ because we are thirsty. And until we see our need and cry for help, we will never come at all. The idea here is what we should be telling the world around us, what we should go when people lament to us, of their depression, of their anxiety, of their pain, of their sorrow, of their emptiness, your response shouldn't be, well you dummy, come to Jesus. Your response should be, I too was lonely, was anxious, was depressed, was filled with hopelessness. I too tried to fill my life with sex and money and possessions and drinking and drugs and you name it. I tried to do it and it didn't fill me. When was the last time you agreed with an unbeliever, with a person who was lost, that just like them, you were on a search to find something? Now you don't just stop there and put your arms around and just cry with one another but you then move to what are you leaning on and so you say I was lost I was blind I was lame I was deaf I I was dead But now, because of Christ, I can see, because of Christ, I can hear, because of Christ, I can walk, because of Christ, I have life. And so notice, if any of you are thirsty, come to me, Jesus says. And so you go to that person, you say, I too was like you at one time, but I met Jesus. Can I tell you about him? I met Jesus, can I tell you what he did in my life? I met Jesus, and can I tell you how he filled my life? You see, this is what one evangelist said. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Both of us were thirsty. But can I tell you, friend, who is thirsty, who is parched, I found Jesus, and he set me free. I found Jesus and he gave me what I was looking for. To come to Jesus, Jesus is saying that you come to me and you will find all that you were looking for. The fulfillment of all your desires. But it means to come to him is to, in essence, in gambling terms, if you will, to go all in for Jesus, to place all of your chips across the table and say, on Jesus, I put all of my hope, all of my trust, I'm banking all of my life on Jesus, and in doing so, I say to a watching world, without Christ, I had nothing, and with Christ, I have everything. When was the last time in your interactions with the non-believing world that you put your arm around them and said I was lost just like you were and you lamented with them and you hurt with them and you cried with them but then you said but I found Jesus and Jesus took care of what I was looking for and then you pivot to the next thing and that is what am I living for? So we go from what we're looking for to what we're leaning on. We're leaning on Jesus. Now we're living for him. And that is that when we have been changed in that way and transformed in that way, we are going to get that on other people. When I was in high school, uh, our class took a trip to Florida. Florida and we went to SeaWorld was on the agenda, and we went to the Shamu show, okay? And at the Shamu show, our class was put right in the front where nobody ever wants to sit on Sunday morning. And when we sat down, one of the attendants came to us and, and said, hey, underneath your seats are ponchos and a big tarp. You may want to get that. And one of the kids next to him goes, why? And it was almost perfect because when he said why, that massive whale came out of the water and leapt out of the water, whatever you would call a whale coming out of the water, and right before us, bam! And you know what happened, right? Splash zone. We were soaked because we we were around something that had such an impact that it displaced the water from the pool onto us. Brothers and sisters, we need to have, and don't take this too seriously, but we need to have our own Shamu experience. Some of you are like, just watch me jump in a pool, and you'll get a Shamu experience, right? One guy laughed, thank you. Have you ever thought what kind of splash you're making in your world? That you have been so transformed by Christ that you are making these splashes and your Christianity, like that water, is just being displaced to a watching world. Can the people around you say, man, so-and-so at work Man, they changed this place, not for the bad, not for my friend who I talked with with that uh, customer at the catering event. But man, I love, and, and here's what I know to be true, I know that to be an exception to the rule because that's not the first time I've ever shared one of your names somewhere. And by the way, I hope you can do the same with me. You should be able to do the same with me and hopefully people will come back and go, man, if that's your pastor, I don't wanna be a part of your church. So I want to know that this isn't just on you, this is on me. But would the people around you say, that person, they make much of Jesus. And maybe I'm a critic of it, I don't like it, I wish they wouldn't bring it to to the workplace or to the school, but they do it. And you'll get some of that. Or maybe some of the curious people will say, boy, they, they sure love their Jesus. That's all they talk about. It's all they're talking about. It's all that they want to uh, announce to the world. Now, I get, listen, I get we have bad days. I get that to have that kind of spiritual energy is difficult. I get it. I know tomorrow's Monday, all right? And the last thing I want to bring into the Monday school hour or the Monday work day is Sunday joy, right? But over the course of time, what would people around you say that you are showing? As Jesus says, are rivers of living water flowing from you? You and I have to evaluate that. We have to ask the question, not only what am I saying and what am I showing, but where am I standing? How am I standing? What are people seeing in me? Are they seeing the kind of joy-filled, abundant life-living follower of Jesus Christ that makes following Jesus Christ attractive? Or are we like the rest of the world, helpless, hopeless, and lost, and we've just put on Jesus kind of as just a safety blanket or a a warm and fuzzy companion in the journey, but it really doesn't impact our lives. Listen, if we are going to make Jesus our all in all, people around us will know it and will have experienced that. So why might not you and I be doing it? Let me give you a couple things to consider. Maybe you're not standing where you need to. Could it be that you're distracted today? Could it be that you're distracted? Distracted from Christ? Distracted from the things of Christ? We have a lot of distractions in this world. One of the greatest distractions we have is in our hands, these cell phones. And we can use them for great tools to draw us closer to God, but, but we're more involved in, in watching reels and TikTok videos and, and playing games on our phone and, and they're not bringing us any closer and every study says we're spending hours upon hours on that stuff and we're distracted. We find ourselves captivated by the things of this world instead of Christ himself. Number two, maybe we're just spiritually dull. Some friends here at our church are celebrating their anniversary today, 20, I think, three years. 23 years. Amanda and I have been married a year longer than them. And in that time frame, kind of been there, done that, right? We don't have all of the Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed dreams of anniversary gifts and all of that. We're kind of in it, right? And we, we, we walk some miles together. And so the flair and the, uh, the pizzazz, you know, in some ways has kind of been lost. And it's easy to become dull in our marriages and in our relationships. And let's add to that. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for 23 years. Could it be that you've become dull to the things of God? Just been here, done that. Been a part of small group, read the Bible in a year, done all these things, served in my church, and it's not changing my life. Well, the Bible says that be careful because we could leave our first love. Be careful when you're spiritually dull because that's when temptation starts to arise. And so fan the flame, fan the passion of your love. Don't forget, as Paul told Timothy, of the great faith of those who came before you and the passion and the calling that God put on your life. Don't become spiritually dull. Could it be that you've had a distorted view of what discipleship is? Do you believe that to be in Christ as a one-time transaction that gets you on the right roll call, and then you don't have to do anything. What Jesus is inviting us to, to those who are distracted, to those who are spiritually dull, to those who have distorted view, who are standing far from God right now, even though your words say you're close to God, Jesus invites you, and he says, come to me. And he says, in me you'll find forgiveness. In me, you'll find the hope you're looking for. In me, you will find the abundant life that maybe you've lost sight of because what Jesus is saying, it's not what's on you. But Jesus says, I wanna be in you. And so he sent his Holy Spirit to come and he prophesied that the Holy Spirit was gonna come on the day of Pentecost and he's here today and he can fill us and he can make much of Christ in our lives if we would just invite him in. So will you, come to Jesus. Will you give your life to him and rededicate in the second week of the year that 2022 is going to look different than 2021 because I'm going to drink deeply from the well of Jesus Christ. Amen.